Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, so at this point, we hope that you have listened to part one of our Dobbs and Roe podcast episode. If you haven't, we recommend you go listen to that one first. That has our interviews with our friends, Michaela and Jessica, which were both excellent. If you have listened to that, then you are in the right place for some more Supreme Court discussion in this part two of our episode we have two segments, both of which we actually recorded first. Uh, and so some of it might seem a little out of order, but hopefully it all ends up flowing and making some sense. In our first segment, we're going to talk about the general perception and legitimacy of the court at this point, given what's happened this term, but also in the past few years. And then we're going to get into some of the other decisions that the court has released over the past month. Obviously, they have been largely overshadowed by the Dobbs decision, but there are a number of other interesting, important issues that the court ruled on in this term. And we touch briefly on a few of those. And finally, before we get into all that, just a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by those hardworking guys who've been making handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Yeah, those are the guys over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You can find them online at www.cannonhillwood.com or on Instagram. Give them a look, get some nice furniture, and we hope you enjoy part two of our Dobbs episode. So obviously, you know, for a while now, we've been kind of teasing out that middle of June, end of June, the Supreme Court was sort of slated to release its opinions on a number of different court cases. Obviously, the the biggest one um, being Dobbs, which which we'll get to. Um, But there are a couple others that I think bear noting and you know, one of the things that I was talking to you about before we started recording today is that, you know, people on, on, on sort of my side of the aisle and my, my Instagram feed and my social media, you know, are, are posting a lot of, well, there are a lot of feelings, obviously strong emotions about what's happened, but one of the reactions that I think was interesting, um, wasn't a real, sort of attack on the court and attack on the legitimacy of the court. And I, I kind of wanted to spend a little bit of time before we dive into some of the rulings, talking about the court, talking about sort of the judiciary in comparison to like the executive or the legislative branches of government, um, And maybe just like posing that question a little bit, like, does the court have a legitimacy problem, Um, particularly with, yeah, well, maybe, maybe I'll start there. I'm, I'm happy to kind of dive into some, 
court like demographics that I was just looking at that I think are really interesting um, as maybe like a foundational point. But if you have some opening thoughts, I'll uh, I'll kick it over to you. Sure. Uh, does the court have a legitimacy problem? Yeah, I would say so in the wake of everything that's happened in the last few years about how politicized it has, how obviously politicized it has become. The court was always a political body because they were the process for nominating judges, as we've been through many times, is a political process. But it feels, and we've discussed this again a lot, is that it's become more politicized in this last decade in particular, and because it's become so politicized, you have more attention on it and more people feeling like the judges are installed are not neutral arbiters of the law who are just up there to interpret the law, which is their job, but are really just imposing their ideologies on everyone else. So I think that's a, that's a feeling that a large majority of people that pay attention to these things have, which is obviously not a good thing. Uh, the court, as I'm sure you know, just like go back historically, Article 1 in the Constitution establishes the legislative branch, which the founders meant to be the most powerful branch. Article 2 is the executive branch. Article 3 is, establishes the Supreme Court and any other necessary courts that Congress seeks to establish. I, I, I'd say that just to make the point that the court was always thought to be the third of the three branches. Now we very much view three co-equal branches of government, but I'm not sure the founders really believed that. It seems like the court was maybe not a co-equal branch of government to start with, and the court had to work really hard in order to reach a certain status in society. And it's something that we maybe took for granted, or we take for granted now, and certainly probably took for granted 10 years ago. But the court, through John Marshall, who was the famous, like, not the first chief justice, but the most famous chief justice. I think he was maybe like 1810 to 1837, but establishes the principle of judicial review, which is that the court is able to declare actions of the other branches of Congress unconstitutional. That's a significant thing that greatly elevates the power of the court. And then people decide that they have to listen to the court. And that's like a lot of presidents saying and just agreeing to go along with what the court says when they didn't have to. So you think about even after... Brown v. Board, Arkansas, for example, the Little Rock Nine, a lot of people probably heard of that, the Little Rock Nine, nine Black teenagers in high school trying to uh, integrate Central Central High in Little Rock, Arkansas. The Arkansas governor said, not in my state, we're not going to have, we're not going to listen to the Supreme Court's ruling in Brown. And Eisenhower had a decision to send in troops or not send in troops. Like, is he going to back the legitimacy of the court and, and put the full weight of the American military behind it? He says yes. And then you look at decisions that have gone against presidents, like famously, perhaps infamously in some ways, like in the Bush administration, there were a lot of cases around Bush, the, the treatment of terrorists and suspected terrorists in places like Guantanamo Bay, where when those, those people, those individuals that were being held without due process, without, without a trial, anything like that, were being held indefinitely because of their alleged ties to terrorism, their alleged danger to society, the court ruled in, in favor of a lot of those people and the Bush administration had accepted those. Like, I think Bush came out and said, like, I disagree with this ruling for X, Y, and Z, but we're going to accept it. So we basically have a long history of the court working to establish legitimacy. And then a lot of people, presidents, people in Congress choosing to accept that. This kind of goes along with the stuff that we had talked about previously of just like a lot of like the things that we 
maybe thought before these last few years, like held our country together, were just a lot of individuals choosing to submit to the rule of law. And we didn't realize how important that was until you have people in positions of power that are not going to submit to the rule of law. So I, that's a super long-winded historical answer of, of saying that the court worked for like 230 years to gain legitimacy where people would follow it. It feels like a lot of that work has been undone in the last decade. We feel it most acutely in the last few weeks, but this is really just a culmination of actions that, again, we've lived, we've you know, laid out repeatedly under Harry Reid, under Mitch McConnell, um, to get a court that we have today. Right. And you're referring specifically to removing the filibuster to allow for um, basically nominations to proceed with fewer than 60 votes. Um, yeah. I All right. So I, I guess... I mean, that was actually a, a lovely his, history lesson. Let me first acknowledge. Um, I think I think we in present day have a tendency to like romanticize a little bit about the court. I think there have been like, and now of course my unpreparedness is going to show, but like uh, several Supreme Court justices who had like ties to the Ku Klux Klan and like slaveholders in the 1800s. And I think, I think there is, but the, like the ideal of the Supreme court, as you were saying, like, you you know, in the, in sort of the nineties era civics, it's three co-equal branches of government. And the idea being that we have these like wonderful checks and balances so that not, you know, in, in no one way can, can we really like sort of railroad things through other people without, without this, um, you know, yeah, I mean, with, without this review, and that was sort of the point of like the lifetime appointments is that Supreme Court justices could be kind of above, above the political fray because they didn't have to worry about whether they were going to get reelected or not. Um, it's, it's interesting to think about how we learned about it in sort of civics class and sort of think about also how it, it has un. Unra- uh, un- unfurled or unraveled I'm not entirely sure what the right phrase is in sort of the last 15 years and I think or in sort of the last 15 years and that that could just be like my disillusionment with like the simple civics lessons that I learned in like sixth grade history class and or like the fact that you know perhaps there is a certain level of a legitimacy crisis today that maybe we didn't feel in the 90s but of course like if i'm a progressive in the 90s and early 2000s when when the progressives kind of are are running the court i'm not going to feel that way right like i think i think there is something certainly to acknowledge there and, and the court like all like every political body that we have has gone through these cycles in the past and continue to do so today um but I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about like the makeup of today's court um, in light of some of the rulings that we have. So, of course, like on the legitimacy side of things, people will point to that the fact that today's Supreme Court has six Republicans or six conservatives, I'm sorry, 
versus six. You have six judges that were nominated by Republican presidents. Okay. But all right. So six, six judges that were nominated by Republican presidents. The only one to be nominated by a president who won the popular vote in his first election, his only election would be Clarence Thomas by Bush senior. Um, the other, you're not, you're not wrong, but as usual, this is like the half truth because president George W. Bush did win the popular vote when he, in his second term, which is when he nominated Alito and Roberts, but continue. I understand your point. Right. But he didn't win the popular vote the first time around and wartime presidents frequently do win popular votes the second time around, not necessarily for any other reason than there's like a huge fear of lack of continuity in these times. Anyways, whatever. <laughs> who? All right, I'll say technicality or not by people who did not win the popular vote and or were not reelected for a second term. <laughs> uh, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, obviously three of the nine Supreme Court justices nominated by Trump. Um, you have Breyer, who's about to retire, obviously, and going to be replaced by a Biden nominee. Um, Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, both nominated by Obama. Um, any care to guess what the religious makeup of the Supreme Court is? I know that Coney Barrett's Catholic, um, and maybe Kavanaugh is Catholic too, because I don't think we, there's only been like five Catholics ever on the Supreme Court. So I think they're like two of five. So I think that's significant. I would guess the rest are some sort of Protestant. Um, is Kagan Jewish? No, I don't know. That's uh... Yeah, yeah, that uh, that's absolutely right. Kagan is Jewish. Um, and oh, maybe I have read the wrong. I think Sotomayor is Catholic as well. Huh. Um, I actually think the majority of the Supreme Court is Catholic. I think Gorsuch might be too. Um, and now I need to fact check myself because I think the, the original thing that I read was that all judges, all sitting judges right now, except for Breyer and uh, Kagan are Catholic, um, which is seven out of nine. Uh we may have to fact check that one, but let's say broadly that at least seven out of nine are Christian. We have two Jewish um, judges in, in Breyer and Kagan. Breyer, of course, set to retire. I like any, <laughs> any guesses as to like the population of America that identifies as Catholic? 15%. Eh, it's actually conservatively low, 22%. So, I mean, I think I think one of those one of the reasons that I bring that up, obviously, because of the way that we are seeing some of these cases unfold, um, we have a court that religiously or like by religion doesn't necessarily reflect the country. And I think one of the things that's interesting is that even though judges are, of course, forced to apply. Or, or charged with applying the law to the cases that they see and interpreting the law and more broadly interpreting the constitution, there is, or there always feels like this like specter of how are they interpreting like morality. And I think we know that, or I think it's fair to say that morality and sort of religious leanings 
like are really intertwined. And I think that that's interesting, particularly in a couple of these cases that we've had in the Kennedy and Bremerton, obviously um, the Dobbs case that we'll talk about as well. Um, and I and I wonder a little bit how you feel about that in terms of this idea that like religion isn't supposed to have kind of a guiding force on how we operate as a government insofar as that was like part of, you know, like we talk about what the founding fathers intended a lot um, in terms of like interpreting law, particularly anything to do with the constitution or the bill of rights. Um, And I, and I wonder how you interpret that um, in terms of that we don't really, we have, we don't really have any justices who sort of identify as a religious And that's kind of part of the confirmation process, almost like everybody wants to know, like, do you believe, do you believe in God kind of thing? I don't know. I, I, I I want, and I wonder if if you feel like that could contribute to some of these legitimacy issues. Um, I think it came up quite a bit, right. In like Coney Barrett's uh, confirmation process. I mean, however you feel about that, but this, it's sort of like a recurring theme. And I'm, I'm curious in terms of like, we talk about on the one hand, sort of the separation of church and state, but on the other hand, how, yeah, how we see our elected leaders and, and of course now the judiciary in this. That's obviously, it's, yeah, it's obviously a super tricky issue because people who are religious, that is part of your identity. That's part, it's going to shape how you view the world and how you like, how you view policy and things that like matter to you and are important to you. And so it's, it's hard, like I said, because in an ideal world, you would be able to, as a judge, separate the religious part of you from your role as a judge, which is just to rule on the law. And that's what a judge is supposed to do. And so any judge that can't do that, I don't think should be a judge. And so I did think the, the questioning of Coney Barrett went far too far um, and, and in some ways almost like demonized her for her Catholic faith. But I think the, the origin of the questioning was like, look, uh, is your faith going to impact how you're ruling on the law? And of course, no, no judge in the confirmation process is going to say yes, right? Because you, you can't get confirmed that way. But it's, I think you're alluding to this. It's, it's hard to separate there's no like one part of you that's your religious part that you can just set aside when you're looking at the, at the law. And so that's where it's like, it's murky. How much did religion impact Barrett or Kavanaugh or Roberts or Alito or whomever, or sort of my, all right. The, it, it's impossible to tell. And they are going to say that it didn't at all, but that's just hard to believe. So I don't know. It's not something I've given a ton of thought to, but maybe that's just because like, I'm, I'm pleased with how the, these rulings are coming out. And so like, I'm, I'm not upset about them. It, yeah. It's an interesting question. It, it's probably one that's impossible to answer. I, I would probably guess that throughout the Supreme court's history, we've had justices that are far more religious than we do now that religion was probably a far, like as religion was just a far bigger part of American society than it is now. And obviously we 
most of the justices are older, but I don't think this is like a new issue. And as a judge, are you able to do your job and just view the law and interpret the law in terms of the constitution? Or are you allowing your personal views, whether they be religious or moral or philosophical, or whatever, to creep into your decision-making? The best judges don't let that happen. I think, I don't know what to say about these judges. I, I, I mean, I think that's fair. I, I guess at the, at the end of the day, what we are asking of judges is really somewhat of an inhuman thing. And the best that we can hope for is that they at least say the right thing um, during these confirmation processes. I think, so the confirmation process is also something that I think is interesting. Um, What do you make of a number of these judges sort of either vaguely or more openly basically talking about accepting of settled law in light of how they ruled. Does it bother you that during the confirmation process, many of them said one thing or said something that essentially alluded to something because they felt like it was what they had to say when they were getting confirmed versus how some of these cases played out? And does that contribute to a legitimacy issue? Yeah, we we talked about this, right? Of in an ideal, in my ideal world, I would love judges to just answer or people that are nominated for the Supreme Court just to answer truthfully. But they're they're not going to do that for both practical reasons, because if you answer truthfully, you're not going to get confirmed. And also because, and this is more like legitimate reasons where you can't, as someone that potentially is going to be sitting on the Supreme Court, if you get confirmed, really like tip your hand to forthcoming legislation, right? If, if, if Kavanaugh had gotten up there, Coney Barrett, Gorsuch had gotten up there and said, yeah, I would be open to a Roe v. Wade challenge that said that Roe should be completely overturned. There, like, even if that's true or not true, like that would just signal like every lawyer out there to start filing those type of challenges. And so you want to at least allow the justices to rule on the cases as they come in front of them. I understand like Collins and Manchin were the ones that really came out and said, oh, I, I was misled by these justices. I feel duped. And it's like, it's honestly hard for me to have sympathy for those two. And those are two of my very favorite senators. But like, come on, guys, like you, you knew what was happening. And I'm glad, obviously, I think not only was it the right thing to vote for these people because they were qualified. And as Collins said in confirming Jackson, that's really the role of the Senate. But they like, it's just, I feel like Collins and Manchin all of a sudden were getting a lot of heat being like, you were the two that you were the swing votes that confirmed some of these justices. And now look what they did. And now they had to immediately be like, well, I was lied to. And it's like, you weren't really. So I have no sympathy really for the senators that voted to confirm them. And again, I'm glad that they did, but um, I'm not mad at the justices. I don't feel like they lied. I think they did what most justices have done in the confirmation process in the last 40 years was just to be as opaque as possible. So I am a little mad about what they did and not because like they're like the first to do this or specifically because they're like the first to do this, you know, either for or against their party. I think one of the things that like feels lost from this discussion is that there are more moderate judges like we know how people view the law based on the things that they have written about and so these judge these particular judges and you can argue the same about progressive judges that have been nominated before them like like we knew we like you exactly like you're saying about Collins and Manchin like you knew who these people were 
you asked them a question, they, they lied to you or they just like omitted the truth and you were like, whatever, I'm voting for them. And you're not wrong that they like qualification, like on paper, they, you know, are fully qualified as, as is, you know, the latest justice to be added to the bench. But if, if we are to live up to these ideals, like, shouldn't we be looking for, and like, shouldn't we also look to our moderate senators when they have opportunities to be swing votes to be like, look, I'm not doing this because this isn't a moderate candidate. Like I, like Collins, I I mean, this, the idea of like the, I'm a socially liberal, but fiscally conservative person to me, doesn't, doesn't feel like exists. Like, where are those people? I don't, I don't, I don't really ever. Right here, Ricky. <laughs> right here. You're well, looking at him. <laughs> S- sitting in his room. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you can say that you're pleased with this rulings and still feel so. I, and, and I, and I know why you're pleased with them. Cause you feel like it was like an adequate a- application of the, of the law in that, insofar as you disagree with. Yeah, we'll get into it. Yeah, whatever. We'll get into it. But I think like, and I mean, we're sort of seeing it now with Manchin, but you never saw it really with Collins and Murkowski before that, like, hey, I'm I'm this moderate swing vote and I can like, you know, metaphorically swing my dick around now because nobody listened to me before. And now they have to, because otherwise nothing gets passed. Right. But like Collins and Murkowski had a similar opportunity and really didn't ever do that. Like you can kind of applaud them for not like getting fully aboard the crazy train. But when it, when push came to shove, they were always voting for things and they were never making real like stinks about anything to like push forward this, like, Oh no, no, no. there, you, there's space for the socially like liberal person who believes in, access to abortion and believes in gay marriage, but also like just doesn't want taxes or like what, I don't, I like whatever. Yeah, what, you're, what you're describing are like political qualities. That's not like the job of the judge. It's like discern like what your policy goals are. The job of the judge is to interpret the law. But, and like, but, but, you, but you know what the opinions of these judges are on the law. Sure, you know sure. that they fall on an extreme side of the spectrum. So yeah. if you're a moderate candidate or if you're a moderate senator, And you have this opportunity. I mean, I I think these types of things for me really like grind at like the legitimacy of the court. And I guess, you know, to go back to the technicality, right. Trump's three appointees are really the, are are really the swing here, right. We'd be sitting at a five to four or potentially a six to three in the other direction. If president, if, if a president, who won the popular vote was nominating these justices. So if, (laughs) I mean, and we know the Senate kind of has that same sort of issue that the electoral college has from a, just like a, you know, pure democracy as, as one of the guiding principles of how we should be operating, especially at the federal level, we know that it's not here. And so like, is it a, I mean, it, it feels like a very fair criticism to have national policy being set by three judges who didn't, who, you know, were appointed by a president who didn't win the popular vote in the same period that a Senate was controlled by, you know, the same group of people who, who were not under, who were, didn't win the popular vote by like five or 6 million votes. And 
yeah, I mean, you can argue that's a, a percent out of 330 million people, but it's not an inconsequential number of people. Sure. Uh, there's that, that term like the tyranny of the minority, like that, that's coming out right now. And if you tie all those things together, like you just did very well, if the Senate is not representative of the American population and that a president that lost the popular vote is not representative and the judges that the president that lost popular vote in the Senate that isn't representative confirm are not representative of the people. Yeah, I think putting all those things together, it's a, it's a pretty strong case. Uh, my, my counter to that really is that the judges are not making public policy. They actually just return public policy to the people. Okay. I think maybe, maybe that's a good place to leave our general discussion of the court and we can get into it. No, no, I can't. I no, can't this was supposed to be a general discussion. No, I know. But I mean, obviously, these are things I've been thinking about, and you're really the only person who, are, who will entertain me here. Okay, so I think that that's fair. And again, like in the ideal perception of how we are supposed, how the government is supposed to op- operate, legislative branch is supposed to legislate, president is kind of like supposed to direct them based on based on their election and sort of the goals that people want to see legislated on. And then the judiciary is supposed to basically just ensure that what the legislative branch is putting out there is then sort of followed to the intent of the legislation and to the letter of the law. Of course, the problem is, like, (laughs) we have a legislative branch that really doesn't effectively legislate on any types of social policies because of these issues with the filibuster we have an executive branch that basically tries now to legislate via executive order, which every other president then just like is now undoing. And so the only branch that you have left that has any staying power feels like the judiciary. And so conservatives very astutely seeing that they didn't really need a majority of uh, senators and or um, House delegates to kind of direct policy if, if as long as they did the work to obstruct to obstruct policy, then all they have to do is, is get ju- the ju- judiciary, which they did a very good job of filling a lot of lower courts and uh, eventually the Supreme Court under Trump's presidency with conservative judges. And, and this is what we're left with. So like the idea of the court sort of being this neutral body that's arbitrating on legislation, it doesn't feel like that's what it is anymore. It almost feels like it's the body that that can supersede the other two. Is that a problem for how we're operating? That's a huge problem. And I feel like the court has done that repeatedly over the last 60 years. And finally, we're getting back to a court that's actually throwing policy back to the people. So I think I agree totally that it's a huge problem. And luckily we have a court that's not going to do that anymore. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. So if you've stuck with us this long, we very much appreciate it. We hope that this has been interesting uh, informative, maybe entertaining in, in some ways, thought-provoking, we hope. But 
while the Dobbs decision has understandably dominated 90%, 95%, of the media coverage and certainly the social media coverage of the last few weeks, the Supreme Court did issue 27 other opinions over the course of the last three weeks. I believe they still have four outstanding opinions, but nothing incredibly significant as far as I know. But I want to just highlight a few cases that people might either have been keeping an eye on or might be interested in. So there was the the gun case that, that came out. Uh, it's the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. So essentially in this case, the New York State Rifle Association on behalf of two individual plaintiffs sued the New York, I believe it's the superintendent of New York police, but essentially New York state laws and the police are the ones that enforce them. The New York state law, which is one that Massachusetts and I think five other states had almost identical laws to, made that if you wanted to carry a gun outside of your house, you had to apply for a license. In that application, you had to show special cause. So you need to have a very specific reason why you were allowed to carry a gun outside of your house. Again, that was the law in New York State, a law in Massachusetts, law in four other states like Oregon and a couple others, maybe Washington. And New York, so this case winds up the Supreme Court, uh, the Supreme Court in 6-3 decisions split along ideological lines uh, declares that New York's law is unconstitutional, which now will make it far easier for individuals in New York and these other states to apply for and be granted licenses to carry guns outside of their homes. So that's one, obviously, that was very significant until the Dobbs, people were already up in arms about that. But then the Dobbs case came out, I think, just four days later and obscure, really, no, it came out the next day. It was the gun case came out. And then the next day, the Dobbs case came out. So it was the gun case had not even 24 hours of fear before the Dobbs case obscured everything else. Um, Two religious liberty decisions. One was in Maine. So Maine has a law, and if anybody's familiar with the state of Maine, it's a, it has a few urban centers, but it's a rural state in a lot of ways. So if your town, your area in Maine doesn't have a public high school, which many don't, the state of Maine provides public dollars for you to take those dollars and enroll your child in a different high school. So that different high school could be the public high school that's two towns over. It could be a charter school. It could be some other uh, a vocational school. I mean, uh, so it could be any of those type of schools. But Maine said, we're not going to allow you to take that money and enroll your child in a religious school, separation of church and state, First Amendment. The justices, again, in a 6-3 decision, said that that was unconstitutional. So now in Maine and presumably in other states that have similar type issues, which there are many rural states you're thinking of really out out west, Midwest, that are going to have issues like this. Uh, And I can easily see this ruling being expanded where the state is going to give parents money and the parents are going to be able to take that money and enroll their their children, child into religious schools. In a similar religious freedom case that got a little more notoriety, just I guess maybe in my circle, because like on ESPN and stuff like that. Uh, But a football coach in the state of Oregon uh, had been praying after football games. And he had started just by himself going out to the 50-yard line after football games and praying. Shortly thereafter, he started to be joined by 
some of his fellow players, players on other teams that would all join and pray together. And then he started giving maybe brief speeches, prayers around that. He was relieved of his duties and, and dismissed. Um, I believe his contract wasn't renewed largely because he refused to stop praying. And the school was like, well, we can't have you out essentially doing like a, a school sponsored and therefore a state sponsored religious exercise on the football field. The coach said, why can't I keep praying? He sued that. He said this, the school was violating his first amendment rights. Once again, six, three decision, the court ruled that if he wanted to keep praying, the school could not prevent him from doing so. Um, there are a couple other interesting cases. One about, uh, the one one concerning the death penalty in Georgia, one concerning Miranda rights in Arizona, one concerning uh, Republican legislature and voter ID laws in North Carolina, all of which might be a little more uh, esoteric. So for people are like more interested in some of the obscure laws, those those cases are all worth looking into. But um, Ricky, any of those cases that I mentioned, particularly the three big ones, catch your eye or anything you want to discuss from there? Well, I, I mean, I guess the first one, um, the coach, and I think it's actually, or he was in Washington State, no longer a resident there. It's it's interesting how you came to learn about the story, because I actually heard the sort of the facts in the reverse, that he started out by kind of leading prayer circles with his players before and after games, and then the school got wind of it and asked him to stop that, which he actually did. And then the only thing that he was doing towards the end of games is he would go to the 50 yard line, kneel and pray by himself. So he wasn't even with his students at that point. And then the school was still like, no, you still can't do that. And at that point he's, he, he made the lawsuit. I'm, I'm not entirely sure if, if you're misremembering the facts or if like this sort of the news outlets that you use, sort of represented it one way and I heard it almost the complete reverse. I'm not sure if it actually matters um, specifically, but I I just thought that was interesting. The main case is also interesting because I've essentially heard that Maine, in order to get around some of their misgivings about providing public funding for religious institutions, namely that many of them would discriminate against gay or, or L, like the larger LGBTQ plus community by saying that, okay, you can be a religious institution, but if you choose, if you are like discriminatory against these things, then you cannot get public funding. So like an end around to essentially either force those religious institutions not to take the public funding or to um, sort of be more broad and be more accepting of um all of Maine's residents. I say that to say that I think that a lot of the times, especially when we hear about these Supreme Court cases, we think kind of of the dire consequences or the cascading effects. Um, But that, and, you know, we've seen this example in, you know, in the decades following Roe v. Wade of conservative states and how they've sort of skirted the court's opinion and cracked down on abortion in different ways um, that like, yeah, that, that, that there is sort of the reality of what happens at the Supreme court level. And then there's like the reality of what happens on the ground and how, how, yeah, I mean, people are, (laughs) when, when laws are made, people are pretty good at figuring out loopholes 
Um, and, and that's what we, I think, are, are seeing in some of these cases. Um, but I don't know, those are some of my original thoughts. I do think, you know, the makeup of the court and the specific kind of religious institutions in Maine and also um, the coach that was praying, I think that there is an interesting parallel there. I think people may be drawing too much into it, but I definitely worry about the supersedence of a particular religion in terms of how some of these things play out um, and what that means for some of like, yeah, how we think about like the ideals of how this country is supposed to be run and, and that separation from religion being kind of foundational. But, you know, I also have some misgivings about a lot of things that were foundational. So <laughs> hard to say that it's fair to pick and choose. I didn't leave you with much. I didn't, I didn't leave you with much to ask there. I don't know. What do you think about them? Or do you, do you think, are you at all concerned that religion will pay play a, a greater than, I don't know what the, I don't really know what the word is because obviously religion plays a big part in a lot of people's lives and it doesn't dictate those lives or dictate everything that everybody feels about them. So to sort of say that there's kind of some kind of cultish behavior or whatever that's, that's necessitated by this seems off. And yet there is kind of like the, the optics of the situation. Right. I think when you, you, think of the first amendment and the, the establishment clause of concerning religion, it's right. The, the government shall make no law respecting the, the establishment or regulation of religion or something along those lines. And we, we in more simplistic terms think, all right, separation of church and state, those should never intersect. And what the justices have ruled in those two cases is that you're discriminating against religions in ways that you're not discriminating against other things. So in Maine, when you give a family $10,000 and say that you can use it at this public high school or this charter school or this private high school over here, but you can't use it at a religious school, well, now you've made laws against religion as opposed to just treating religion the same as, as everything else. And kind of the same thing with the individual, the football coach, right, is that he is being denied work because of his personal religious beliefs that he was just exercising, not as a state sponsor of religion, but just on his own. I, it's, those are tricky areas because like the dissent said in the football coach case, well, if you have a coach out there, you're going to have players that feel some sort of like peer pressure to go out there and, and sit with it. And once your teammates are out there and your coaches out there, like, it's not easy to be like, all right, well, I'm not really down with that prayer or that religion. So I'm just going to go to the locker room. And so is that a state sponsor of religion? When you, when you explicitly give a main family $10,000 and they can use it at a Catholic school, is that a state sponsor of religion? Right. I, so those it's hard because I read both of those cases and I, I read the majority. I'm like, all right, that makes total sense. It doesn't seem fair to say that you can use this $10,000 everywhere, but the Catholic school that's down the street. 
But then like you read the dissent, you're like, no, that makes total sense. Why should the state be paying for this, this kid to go to a religious school? That, that violates, that's it. That is the state endorsement of religion. So I, that, they're, they're really, really tricky. Uh, generally I'm going to err on the side of like freedom. And so like, I, I, I like these decisions. I like giving families like more school choice and I like allowing people to exercise like their religious values I'm not super comfortable with it. And I understand like this, this is a really gray and blurred area. And I, I would as much as possible like to maintain a strict separation, but obviously in practice, that's far more difficult. So um, I'm more in favor of these decisions than not, but um, I'm not, um, I wasn't like out there, like thrilled about them the way I was about some of the other decisions. But Brendan, I thought you were a state's rights guy. What about, what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I mean, I, I don't think in in Georgia you have any problem with the like I can't imagine that there were really any rules preventing public disbursement of funds to religious institutions in the state of Georgia. Like this is clearly a, a, a Maine decision or clearly a Washington yeah. state decision. All right, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I didn't understand what you're saying. I understand now. Uh, yeah, obviously states can do what they want as long as it doesn't violate constitutional rights. So when when states are violating your free exercise of religion, then you no longer states can no longer do that. But I I don't think anywhere in like providing money to religious schools were you violating someone's free exercise of religion. But that's just me. I mean, I, I guess maybe we'll close and talk about a little bit about New York, mm-hmm. um, which is clearly. And, 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 you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you would say the same thing that the constitutional right of the Second Amendment supersedes any state's, whatever, ability to, con- to control arms. So might as well just hand out a bazooka to the next state. Yeah, might as well. That's, that's yeah, classic slippery slope argument from the Democrats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, how do you feel about that? I'm, I like, I guess you know, it, in the last episode we talked about Kavanaugh and the, you know, the the quote unquote potential assassination attempt. Um, but according to like, essentially what the Supreme Court said, besides this guy calling the cops on himself, if he just wanted to walk around Kavanaugh's neighborhood with a gun under his belt and just kind of like stare menacingly and not say anything this is, this is America. This is where you do that. Yeah. This is really like, this is one of those cases that does test me, like my policy ideal outcome versus my, how I read the constitution. So yeah, policy wise, as I've said, repeatedly on these podcasts, I would prefer there be fewer guns in society. And I think having more guns out in the streets of New York state is not going to make New York a safer place. I'm not a like more guns person. Like if, if more people had guns, there would actually be like less violence out there. That's not a position that I take. And I think it's very frustrating as someone that lives here in Massachusetts. And I understand that there are different views on the gun laws here, but Massachusetts along with probably Oregon have like the two strictest gun laws in in the country. And Massachusetts has knock on wood relatively 
few gun deaths relative, like compared to other states in the country. Not to say that guns do not exist here in Massachusetts or that gun deaths don't happen here in Massachusetts, but they happen at a far lesser rate than other states. And that's a really good thing. I really like living here because fewer, there are just fewer gun deaths. That's a, like, that's great. And this law, this ruling by the Supreme Court is going to make it easier here in Massachusetts to carry guns. I don't love that. With that said, I do think the Supreme Court, it's, there is a right to bear arms every time the court has taken up a gun case, including the famous Heller case in, in DC back in 2003, I think. It says that the right to bear means to carry and to say to restrict, you can to say that you can own a gun, but you can't carry it around. You have to keep it in your house. That seems to go against the plain, obvious language of the Second Amendment. So I, I as like a constitutional law guy, I am pleased with the decision. I think it was the right decision. Uh, policy-wise, I don't love it, but that's that's kind of what I have to live with here. If somebody brought a challenge and said that we should be able to bring guns on planes, how does that square with the Constitution? Right, and so even in the ruling, they say that states are still able to regulate like really designated areas. So if you say that, like, all right, well, we can't bring them on to school grounds or <clears throat> airplanes, for example, where like there are specific places where the state has such a great interest in protecting life that you can regulate those places, but you just can't regulate it generally to say like, hey, in the state of New York, you are never allowed to bring your gun outside of your house. Doesn't doesn't that feel arbitrary? Or I mean, like, I mean, you can envision what is going to be said. It's like, yeah, you can bring it on this street, but if this street turns into an interstate highway, then you can't bring it on and just like figure out. So immediately New York, that's exactly what New York and New Jersey lawmakers are doing is saying like, all right, well, what are the places? Like we know they're going to protect schools, hospitals, maybe public transportation, whatever. Right. But like what other places could we designate as not? And then how far could we expand those boundaries to pretty much get the exact same rule? I'm actually okay with that. Like you kind of said that like smart people are immediately going to try to figure out the laws that, that work. And so if I'm okay with places like New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts doing stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's, I think, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's just tricky in in a climate where we can't really pass broad federal legislation. And then we just end up with this patchwork of weird stuff that like, we feel like, all right, this is, this should be integral or foundational. It should be for everybody, but we don't really we can't really agree on that anymore. We There's like very little. And so instead we have this like weird, <laughs> like, if, yeah, it feels, it just feels weird. No, I, I don't disagree with you. And I, I will say it, it's like totally tone deaf by the court, which is, I'm going to give the court credit for that in a minute. But you, when you look at these recent awful, awful mass shootings that we talked about extensively last episode, and then we have the Senate finally doing something and passing laws to like regulate guns in the United States. And then the next week, the Supreme Court comes out and makes it easier to like walk around with guns in these places where you're kind of like, damn guys, like really? Like after, like we, like after all that, like that's you, but this is again, and talk about this with dogs, the role of the court is not to say what public opinion wants them to say, or not to be swayed by politics. Their job is just to say what the law says. And this is, if they, this is how they believe this is what the law says, this is how it should be interpreted that I'm fine doing it, but it does, I understand like it, it doesn't, it's not a great headline for the court in addition to all the other negative ones they've gotten recently. Oh man. Fascinating though. And again, credit, like 
I know the decisions haven't gone the way that a lot of people wanted them to, but I do give credit to the court for taking this stuff on. It's far easier. It would have been far easier to punt on some of these issues and just say like, all right, let's, let's have the court to stay above the fray and not get involved in, in laws that we think need to be interpreted, but they took them on. Uh, in some ways you could argue that they, they've made their own bed and now they have to lie in it with their legitimacy. I, I wouldn't fight you on that, but I, I have to just, acknowledge that it would have been easier to pass on a lot of these cases. And if their job is truly to interpret the law, and we have Mississippi laws, New York laws coming in conflict with federal laws, well, um, they did their job. You might not like how they did their job, but they certainly did it. I think that's, I think that's a fair place to leave it. Ah, another Another interesting one. Marathon. Yeah, we we might not be, might not have been recording all the time, but when we do record, we have plenty to say. It's like lot built up to get off the chest. Yeah, no, right. for sure. Um, yeah, it's it's things, especially some of these. It's like these are not dinner party conversations, so it's like all right, <laughs> no, we know how to bring down a mood real quick, real fast. All right, all right, man. We'll talk to you. Till next time. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American idea friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the value of sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions we share loud American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz there's hope behind the bluster cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find. 
chase the lion's head And folks of different mind Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different mind Because though we did not Share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.